Well, we are in our second week of a four-week series on the story of the prodigal son. Although, as we'll see here in just a few minutes, it's probably not a good name for the parable. To help us see this with some fresh eyes, uh, each week I'm going to read from a slightly different Bible translation. And this morning I'll read the story from the New Living Translation. Not a paraphrase, an actual translation. Some of the flavor of the story will sound a little bit different. So listen to it, to this story as Jesus told it. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now, instead of waiting for you to die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and took a trip to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money on wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him to feed his pigs. The boy became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired men have enough food to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as one of your hired men. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son began to say to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy, to be, worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring, ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we have been fattening in the pen. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the calf we were fattening and has prepared a great feast. We are celebrating because of his safe return. But the older brother was angry. And would not go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, All these years I've worked hard for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, You celebrate by killing the finest calf we have. The father said to him, Look, dear son, you and I are very close, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So we started this series last week. We came to the realization that by looking at the characters in the story, 
we can learn some fascinating things that are very applicable for our life. Last week we had the opportunity to look at this as the parable of the gracious Father and focusing specifically on how the Father showed grace both to the younger son who had run away but also grace to the older son who had rebelled. And it's a bad name because it seems that when we talk about the parable of the prodigal son, that all of the emphasis in this story is on the young son who runs away. My prayer and my hope this morning is that just as last week we had an opportunity to see a picture of God as our gracious Father, that we will see that sin is a vexing problem that manifests itself in two different ways in the life of people, as younger sons or as older sons. And so this morning we will see why the grace we talked about last week is so needed. I I call this phrase, uh, this portion of looking at this, the parable of the sinning sons. Because the truth is both sons are alienated from the father. Each boy represents different people in different ways to be alienated from the father. But both boys are in desperate need of the extraordinary grace that only the father can give. Last week, we kind of joked about the difference in birth order, that the first is typically the rule keeper and the second is typically the free spirit. Different people have different temptations. And the truth of the matter is, we've got a quick video here to show you. Sometimes when you read the scripture... You're tempted to only see what you think is already there. And so sometimes when you look with new eyes, you'll see something that you never thought was there. So watch this video and see what happens. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? How many of you, be honest, saw the moonwalking bear the first time through? It makes a difference what you're looking for. I don't know if you'd seen that before, but I thought it was great. You're paying so close attention to how many passes they're making with the basketball, you don't notice the guy in the bear suit who's doing his Michael Jackson impression right in the middle of all of the action. In the same way, when we talk about this parable, we tend to see the younger brother is the one who sins. And we completely gloss over the rebellion and the disgrace that the older son gives to the father. So this morning, I want to talk real briefly about what does younger brother sinning look like. In your outline, that's our very first point. What does younger brother sinning look like? How is it expressed? Well, younger brothers, when they sin, are very 
in your face with their sin. Their sin is blatant. It is explicit. It is obvious. You don't have to wonder if a younger brother is sinning. There's no question involved. They value self-expression. If they feel it, they're going to do it. If they think it, they're going to enjoy it. And they're going to be loud about it. They want their desires, their pleasures, um, their prerogatives completely unhindered by any rules. And so in parentheses there, in the blank, you can write the word hedonism. They just want to live for whatever they want to live for. They are the consummate free spirit who are going to do whatever they want to do, darn the consequences. And we, we understand these people. We have seen them. We might be married to them. We might have them as children. We might have them as next-door neighbors. They play their music too loud all the time. They squeal their wheels every time they pull out of the driveway, and you pull your kids off of the street whenever they happen to be driving their hot rod. They're obvious people. And the younger son was definitely this. He flees the father's presence, not because he doesn't like the father, but the father has rules. And rules are completely contrary to the younger brother's style of sinning. He wants to be free. And so he's alienated. He flees because of the father's rules and restrictions. You, you know the type. If you have a younger brother that you're dealing with and you pile rules and restrictions on this person, are you making it easier for them to obey, to conform? No. The more you pile on, it's almost like uh, magnets that repel. The more you try to do it, they just got to get away. And so you see what happens here. He, he wants the father's money. He says, you know, I'll take my money now instead of waiting for you to die, to die so that I can fund my unhindered lifestyle. I just want to live without rules. And typically in that society, uh, there are two boys in the family. The eldest son, as the point of privilege, kind of the, the, the position of honor, would get two-thirds of the family estate, and the younger son would get one-third. He says, well, listen, I'll cash out now. Here's my chips. Give, me, give it to me in money, and I'm going to go. And so he, uh, the problem, again, is not the expectation of getting something from his father. It's the timing. He says, I want it now. I don't want to wait for you to die. Just give it to me. And so he goes his way. And what happens? Does he get to live his unhindered lifestyle? Absolutely. He, he gets to leave, and he gets to have a good time for a while. And he has no thought about the future. He's not saving any of this money. He's not put it into an IRA. He's not put it into a 529 in case he has kids someday that he has to send to college. He just spends it all. And then hard times come, and he finds himself in a desperate situation. Now, we don't know exactly what he has done. Uh, the Bible's testimony is that he has squandered his money. What's the Bible say? Loose living. Now, I think we can all fill in the blank there when it says loose living, but the Bible doesn't fill the blank in for us. It just kind of gives a catch-all, broad brush stroke, loose living. Later on, what's interesting is when the older son gets mad at the father, the older son adds some detail to what loose living looks like. You remember what he said? Not just loose living. He squandered your money with prostitutes. Here's the question. How did the, the older brother know that? 
How did he know that? Or was he just kind of throwing the younger brother under the bus? Had he followed the younger brother? Had he sent spies out? You know, was he Facebook stalking him? You know, what was, what was he doing? You know, checking out his Instagram photos of who, you know, who he's with. Um, I don't know. And so as a hedonist, he loses his money with loose living. And we, we know what this version of the prodigal son looks like. He's recognizable. But unfortunately, this is, this is who we think the prodigal son is. Last week, we saw that prodigal has two, two, two different definitions. One that is reckless living and one that is lavish. We talked about how the father was prodigal by lavishly bestowing his grace upon the rebelling son. Well, here we see a prodigal in the sense of loose living. And so we know who this person is. He's the life of the party. He's loud. He's a drinker. He's a brawler. He's a womanizer. His sin is not hidden. And he is loud and proud. What you see is what you get. This is me, would be what he says. He is like um, Mardi Gras, Spring Break, and Las Vegas, all wrapped up into one person. He's fun to be with, but boy, there are consequences to being around with him. And so... uh, when we talk about the younger son and we talk about younger, uh, younger brother sinning, woohoo! I mean, that's, that's it. That's freedom for them, is being able to live completely free. The truth of the matter is that the parable is much more about the older brother than it is ever about the younger brother. Remember why Jesus told this story? If you go back to chapter 15, verse 1, all of the tax collectors and the sinners, the prostitutes, they liked Jesus. But there was another group of people that didn't like Jesus at all. You know who they were? The religious people. The Pharisees and the scribes. And they said, how can he be having dinner with all these people? Doesn't he know that he's going to ruin his reputation? He might, even, he might even catch a transmittable disease by eating dinner with those kinds of folks. And there's a correspondence here where the younger brother represents the tax collectors and the sinners. And the older brother represents the Pharisees and the scribes. And so as you pay attention to kind of the, the literary form that Jesus uses here in telling the story, you see some really interesting things. There is a storytelling mechanism called the rule of end stress. The rule of end stress. That whatever occurs towards the end of the passage is really where the emphasis is. So what happens at the end of the story? The end of the story is the conflict between the older son and the father. The younger son is good. He's back. He's repentant. He is restored. And the older son is the one who has the problem. So the rule of end stress shows that the climax to the story is the older son's antagonism to the father. Number two, we see that the rule of direct discourse. The younger son only says two sentences in the entire parable. Father, give me the money. And then, Father, I'm sorry. Uh, I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And then the father interrupts him. Two sentences from the younger son. There is a whole dialogue that happens between the older son and the younger son during the party when the father has to go out. And so 
It just doesn't make sense. Some people have tried to divide this parable into two and say there's the parable of the younger son, the parable of the older son. But if you pay attention to the way that the scripture breaks up, when uh, verse 25 begins and they shift to the older son, you can't take verse 25 through 32 and make it a story. It doesn't make sense apart from it. And if the point of the passage was the younger son, then why in the world would Jesus say there was a man who had two sons. He could just say, there was a man that had a son, and boy, he was a hell raiser. That's not what he says. He says, there was a man who had two sons. And the truth of the matter is that the emphasis in this passage is on the older son. He is indeed the main point. But you see, since he's religious, he got an opportunity to name it. I, I guarantee that the older son in some way named it the story of the prodigal son so he could put all the, all the pressure on the younger son. Jesus didn't name it the parable of the prodigal son. He named it the, par- the parable of the two sons. And so um, when we get to older brothers, what does elder brother sinning look like? Well, it's a very different sin pattern for the older brother than it is for the younger brother. The younger brother valued self-expression. But the older brother values self-righteousness. He values self-righteousness. The younger didn't want anything to do with the father's rules. Do you know what? The elder brother, he liked the rules. He, he made the rules God. As a matter of fact, he loved the rules more than he loved his father. Because when his father violated the rules to show grace, what happened? Big problems. Big problems. He wanted the father's rules. He didn't want the father's grace. But he too, like the younger son, wanted the father's stuff. Why didn't you, why didn't you throw a party for me? Why don't, you make, why don't you make much of me? I've kept all the rules. I... You've never even given me a goat. You're giving him a cow? I haven't even gotten a goat to party with my friends. And he's frustrated. And that's because he's into moralistic rule keeping. He doesn't keep the rules because he loves the Father. He keeps the rules because he loves the rules. The problem is we have churches that are filled with people that if the Holy Spirit and God disappeared, they would still keep the rules. Because the rules are really what matter for them. They don't obey God to obey God. They obey the rules because it helps them to look a lot better than that younger brother over there. As a matter of fact, older brothers need younger brothers to survive because it gives them someone to compare themselves to. When the truth is in the church, who who do we compare ourselves to? We compare ourselves to Christ. And at that point, there is no room for pride for any of us. Who in here is not a sinner saved by grace. None of us. But yet this older brother, because he kept the rules, I don't need the Father's grace. I'm a good guy. And nothing makes a self-righteous, proud person angrier than telling him grace is a good thing. No, rule-keeping is a good thing. And that's why we see that this parable is clearly directed at the Pharisees and scribes who who didn't want grace, they wanted rules. And so 
what happens in this moralistic rule-keeping. Listen, morals are not bad. But when moralism becomes your God and not God the Father, you have substituted a cheap imitation for the real thing. And so we see that when the Father shows grace to the younger son, free grace, grace that you cannot buy, grace that is inestimable in its value, when the Father freely offers grace to the younger son, it is that that occasions a five-alarm fire in the heart of the older son. Doggone it. I can't believe you've invited him back. Like a cartoon character, you can see the steam starting to blow out of his ears. Dad, you're not playing by the rules. The rules say, yes, make him a hired man. Make him earn his way back in. How do you earn your favor with God? How good do you have to be for the Father to welcome you back? Well, here's a clue. It is impossible. If it was possible, Christ would not have had to die. And so it is grace, grace that causes the older son to disgrace his father. Did you catch that? It is the father's grace that causes the older son to rebel because he can't see past his rules to see the value in the repentance of his younger son. It's damning. So how does the older son disgrace his father? Well, he does several things. He refuses the most significant social event of the father's life. Listen, killing a cow? I think Jason Wirtz just told me he bought a cow for the first time. Not like a pet. I mean, for food. I don't know how many freezers you would need to put cow meat in if you bought a whole cow. I don't know how big the cow was, but that's a lot of meat. The father and his two sons, we don't know if there was a mother that died, what happened. But we get the idea there's three people in the family. And they're killing the fattened calf. Um, No refrigeration. This is a big party. The entire city was invited. This may be the most significant social event that the father, he's the host And the older son refuses to go in. I'm not going to celebrate that scum-of-the-earth boy coming back. And my father making a fool of himself for welcoming this guy back? He, He effectively gives a vote of no confidence in the father. And he says, Dad, if this is how you are, I don't like you. You're not keeping the rules. And then look at the family dynamics. There's this issue of self-preservation. The older brother is ticked off because his brother is re-aired. The younger brother has already wasted his one-third of the inheritance. And by putting the ring on his finger and the robe around his brother, he's saying, you're not a hired man, you're welcome back in. And we'll split the inheritance, two-thirds, one-third, with whatever we've got left off. Older brother's ticked off because it's messing with his stuff. And that the father does this without the older brother's permission. It cuts into his share. You have no right to decide unilaterally what you're going to do, dad, with my stuff. He doesn't address his father respectfully. He's unwilling to accept back his brother. He broke the rules. He doesn't even refer to him as his brother, this son of yours. When you begin to see... When you begin to see the picture that Jesus is painting 
of this self-righteous moralism of the older brother. You think that contributed at all to why the younger brother wanted to leave in the first place? If you were in that family and you had a rule keeper that was waiting for you to slip up so they could show everyone how good they are, how poor you are, would you want to take, would you want to take your dad's money and run? I think I might. The thing that's just so interesting is that sinners absolutely love Jesus. And they do today. Sinners love Jesus. They just have a problem with church sometimes. Because there are so many ungracious older brothers that populate the roles of our churches who sing about grace but get really offended when we actually see it in action. And I pray as a church that yes, we understand that God calls us to live above reproach, but he doesn't call us to stab people in the back. He calls us to be gracious in joining him in the rescue mission of welcoming repentant sinners home. You think as the party's going on, and the son, younger son sees his father leave, do you think he knows what's going on? Oh, my, my brother's not happy that I'm back. You think it made it easy for him to return? You see, there are two very distinct ways of sinning. The younger son was alienated by his rule-breaking. But the older son was alienated not because of wrongdoing, but by rule-keeping. His goodness was what brought his alienation to the father. He was so proud of his moral record. He was trying everything that he could to not be in need of grace by keeping the rules. And his moralism was the thing that separated him from the father. So at this point, the real point of the story becomes clear. Activity for God or geographic proximity to him is no guarantee that you know him. It is no guarantee that you actually have a relationship with him. In this story, the younger son was farther away geographically. And as a younger son, he was obviously in sin. But as the story ends, who's the one who's reconciled to the father? The younger son. Who's the one who's alienated from the father? The older son. There are two ways to sin. There is the way of sinning by moral conformity, by keeping all the rules. And there is the way of sinning by self-expression and being a hedonistic party animal. One brother rebels by being very good, trying to control the situation. And one rebels by being very bad. But the point is that both brothers are alienated from the father. Both rebel. And the truth is that religion and the sense of rule-keeping... And irreligion and the sense of self-expression are both dead ends without a relationship with the Father. So you can see in this chart, it's an interesting chart, show up on the screen here in just a second, that you see how the older brother does stuff. He's very good. The older brother, very bad. The older brother, very religious with his rule-keeping. The younger brother, very irreligious, breaks the rules. The older brother likes tight living. We already know the younger brother likes loose living. The older brother is self-righteous. The younger brother's into self-expression. The older brother loves the rules. The younger brother doesn't want any rules. The older brother is into manipulative giving, but the younger brother is into selfish taking. The older brother is an ascetic. He'll give things up. The younger brother is a hedonist. He wants it all. The older brother is very principled. 
The younger brother is very passionate. But the point is this. In their own way, they both rebel. And because of the older brother's uh, goodness, he is resistant to the father's grace. But because of the younger brother's outright rebellion, he recognizes grace when he sees it. And he knows that he gets what he doesn't deserve. It's an amazing story. So point number three is the good news. God, as we saw last week, is the gracious father. Just as the father in the parable demonstrates grace to both sons, by running to the younger son's returning and reasoning with the older brother's rejecting. So in his grace this week, the father speaks grace to each son. And here's how the gospel speaks to the boys. Just a couple points. Number one, he tells, tells them, boys, both of you are wrong. Both of you are wrong. You cannot live life without the Father's grace. Romans 3.23, all, all have sinned. Older brother, younger brother, self-righteous, self-expressive, and have fallen short of the glory of God. And he says this, I think, especially to the older. You cannot be good enough not to need the Father's grace. And if your rule-keeping is a way to control the Father, good luck with that. I love G.K. Chesterton was a Roman Catholic uh, writer around the time of World War II. And one of the uh, London newspapers put out an editorial asking, World War I, World War II... What in the world is wrong with the world? So G.K. Chesterton decided to reply to the editor. Dear editor, comma, I am, period. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. When we talk about what's wrong with the world, how do you factor into that? Or is what's wrong with the world... All those darn younger brothers out there that are screwing it up for everybody. See, here's the thing. Younger brothers think the problem with the world is the older brothers. All those uptight people with all their rules. And all the uptight people with the rules. It's all those rule breakers that are out there. Can we just have a moment of clarity and say that we believe Romans 3.23 and say the problem with the world is me. I'm part of it. If I was the only person alive, Jesus would still have to die on the cross for my sins. They are many. They are varied. They are insidious. They are always hanging on to me. I'm what's wrong with the world. Older brother would never say that. Younger brother would. So both of you are wrong. But number two, both of you are loved. Romans 5, 8 tells us that Christ died for us, not once we got cleaned up and reformed, Christ died for us when? While we were yet sinners. Would you take that gamble if you were God? I'm going to send them to die for sinners, and we'll see how they clean up after that. Both of you are wrong, but both of you are loved. And point number three, both of you are called to recognize this and repent. Romans 10.9 says, if we confess with our mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. If we repent, we will be saved. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus died not only to save us from our sins, a.k.a. younger brother, Jesus also came to save us from our self, a.k.a. older brother. 
He came to save us from self-expression. He came to save us from self-righteousness. And the gospel calls us away both from sinful indulgence and from self-righteous moralism. We have no reason to think that we're better than anyone else. And as we apply this, I just ask this question, how do you know? How do you know if you're an older brother? Well, when things don't go your way, do you get angry? Do you feel like, God, listen, I've obeyed. I've done everything you've wanted me to. How can this happen to me? If you get angry with God and you feel like he owes you something, that's a pretty powerful clue that you might be an older brother. Do you have a prideful sense of superiority that makes you unforgiving, unloving, and judgmental? The thing that's funny about older brothers is they're really good at judging other people's motives, but very rarely do they judge their own. If you're judgmental, unloving, unforgiving, another pretty powerful clue that you might be an older brother. When you obey, do you do it with a sense of joy? Older brothers don't. It's joyless duty, not out of love for the Father, but for the simple purpose of keeping appearances up. Perhaps the most telling way that you can tell you're an older brother is that if I ask you, when was the last time you repented of something? You have to think back 20 or 30 years. Because older brothers don't repent of anything. They're good. I keep the rules. I don't have anything to repent of. What do you mean my attitude stinks? They judge everything else except their own heart. And so here's where the story reaches its climax. The younger son, the gross sinner, he's restored. He he has come to the end of himself. He recognizes his sin, and he knows that his father will be gracious to him. But the older brother, the story ends with it kind of open-ended. He is unreconciled. What would you do if today you find yourself in the older brother's sandals? Walk out of here angry? Or praise God for his grace, freely given to us in the death of his son? Everybody tries to save themselves. The younger brother through self-expression. The older brother through self-righteousness. Both forms of self-salvation are wrong. But the story ends by telling us that both forms of self-salvation are not equally dangerous. You see, sometimes you really have to mess up to really understand how messed up you are. And you have to come to your senses. And when you've really screwed up, you repent. And you come and you find a way to make things right. The problem with self-righteousness is that this story ends with the older brother not thinking that there's anything wrong with him. And so the way of elder brother sinning is much more dangerous because we never come to judge our hearts rightly. So here's the good news. I don't know where you find yourself. If any of you are asking, I'm regrettably an older brother. I'm a firstborn. I like the rules. When I was in third grade, I'd make fun of kids that colored outside the lines. I mean, that's how much of a rule keeper I was. But God has created in me a desire 
to see younger brothers restored and to go, I'm fortunate enough to have God work in my life at an early age that I, I never was a prodigal the way that the younger son was. But there are some people in every church, and I would not be surprised if there were a few here, that are more interested in your rule keeping than you are in your relationship with God. Friend, God is a gracious God. And the good news of the gospel is wherever you find yourself on this continuum, is that if you are willing to come to the end of yourself, if you are willing to admit your sin, what will the father do? He ran to the younger son. What would happen if we had a few more verses in the story and the older son finally came to his senses and said, Father, I'm wrong. Would the father cross his arms and go, prove it? No. He would wrap his arms around his neck. He would weep and he would kiss him. And he'd say, though you have never left, you are home again too. So friends, it does not matter how you sin. I will assure you of something. You are indeed a sinner. And you are only saved by his grace. The question is whether your kind of sin is okay sin versus the bad sin. It's all sin. Self-righteousness and self-expression. Are you willing to celebrate the grace of God in Christ freely offered to all who hear the gospel? I pray that you will. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. And oh, God, we thank you that you save us from sin. Lord, even more than that, we pray and we thank you and we praise you that you save us from ourself. You There are so many ways in which we take your grace for granted. Break our hearts. Help us to celebrate your grace, not just to talk about it and sing about it, but when sinners are restored, for us to rejoice just like you rejoice, just like the angels in heaven rejoice. Make us not just people who appreciate what your grace has done for us, but people who celebrate with great joy you restoring sinners to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This invitation that we have is your chance to do your business with God. So if you just need prayer and you want to come down and kneel by yourself, you're welcome to. If you need counsel, uh, I and our other pastors would be glad to talk about you, talk with you about whatever your situation is. And so I pray that as we sing, that you come.